and turn with me this morning to the book of 1 Peter. We're coming back now to our study here in 1 Peter. We began this the first Sunday of this year and we'll be continuing it into next year, but this morning we come to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And it's in this section that the Apostle Peter is encouraging his readers. He's encouraging his readers, he's encouraging all of us that it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Suffering for righteousness is better than suffering for evil. Because when you suffer for righteousness, you are giving an indication that there is a greater driving force in your life than the the normal fleshly compulsion to sin. And that greater compelling force is, is your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what actually proclaims the superiority of Christ. And that's what Peter has been trying to do. That seems to be his theme as he works through this letter. He's been telling us that we as Christians, that we have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light for the purpose, for the very purpose of uh, proclaiming the excellent superiority of Jesus Christ in a world filled with lesser gods. And, and in 1 Peter, he tells us the ways that we do that. Well, how in the world do we publish abroad the greatness of Christ? How do we say something about the supremacy, the excellency of Jesus Christ in this world? And we have seen Peter telling us that this is accomplished in a number of ways. He says in the middle of chapter 2 that we do this through our sanctification. That is through our holy living. As you live a holy, godly, Christ-centered life, you publish, you proclaim to the world that Jesus Christ is better, that He is excellent, that He is supreme, that He is superior. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we find that we proclaim the excellencies of God through our submission. And that can be in the civil area of our relationship to the government, It can be within our homes and husbands and wives, and it can even be uh, within the church. But these last few weeks, and I know we've taken uh, two or three weeks of a break um, from 1 Peter, but the last couple of times that we were together in 1 Peter, we have found that one of the ways that Peter describes or tells us, us as Christians that we can proclaim the superiority of Jesus Christ is through our suffering, our suffering for righteousness' sake. Through suffering as a Christian, we can say something about the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that introduces a a big question, a big what if. And that is, what if when we're faced with the reality of suffering, we get tempted to turn tail and run? What if when faced with the prospect, the the reality of suffering, we just say, you know what? I'm going to go back to my old way of life. How will you and I face the prospect of suffering for Christ as a Christian with a godly resolve? 
That's the subject that he comes to in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Let me read it for you. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the way in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray together. And so now, Lord, we come in incredible, absolute dependence upon you to mold our heart and and shape our minds with the Word of God. I pray that the Spirit of God through the Word of God might produce children of God today and that you might build up the church of God for your glory as we come to your Word. These things we pray in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. This morning, what I'd like to do is to call your attention to what Peter does here in this text, and that is namely, he presents to us four elements, four necessary elements which motivate a godly resolve in the face of suffering. Four necessary elements which motivate a godly resolve in the face of suffering. And I'll just kind of call them out to you and then we'll try to work our way through the text, see how far we get this morning. In verse 1, he calls our attention first to the weapon, the weapon we possess. Then in verses 2 through 4, he calls our attention to the will that we pursue. Then in verse 5, the warning that we ponder. And then in verse 6, the word we preach. These These are four necessary elements to motivate godly resolve even when we're face to face with the prospect of suffering for it. The weapon we possess, the will we pursue, the warning we ponder, and the word we preach. Look first with me in verse 1 at the weapon that we possess. Now, I said to you the last time we were together in chapter 3, Peter says some difficult things, some hard things that have have spawned lots of different uh, interpretations and reasonings and whatnot. My goal today is to boil them down to the least to, to, to the most common denominators, show you exactly what we believe Peter is saying in these verses. Not to grant confusion, but to see how it fits in the context of what Peter has been doing and how it fits in the context with where he's going in this book. And so you see very the very first thing that you see in this verse is the word, well, you come to the word since or therefore. And therefore, it's always an important word. It's always an important marker in our understanding of the flow of things because you know that Peter is not just finishing a subject in chapter 3, cutting it off and starting something new in chapter 4. Rather, he is continuing actually with what he said in chapter 3. He's giving us a point of application here in chapter 4. 
What he does reflects back on the previous section where, if you remember, Peter detailed the work of the Lord Jesus Christ where he says succinctly, Jesus suffered once for sins. Jesus suffered in the flesh once for sins. And his suffering was a triumphant suffering in which he ultimately prevailed over evil. And that is proven by the fact that having suffered, he then went into the heavens, verse 22, where he is at the right hand of God. His suffering did not prevent that triumph. It was actually the way to that triumph. And what Peter is doing is he's going to draw a specific point of application from that truth. What is the specific point of application? It's this, that as a Christian, you must be armed. To which you say, hoo-yah, let's all go to the gun store. No, that's not, he's not talking about a Second Amendment issue here. He's using a verb that is only used one time. This is the only time it is used in the New Testament. And it's a word that comes from a word that speaks about a weapon. Being armed with a weapon. Or maybe you could say, instead of being armed, you could say being properly equipped. Being properly prepared. We are to be properly prepared. If you're going to face the prospect of suffering with a godly resolve, you have got to arm yourself. You've got to be properly equipped. You've got to be properly prepared with a weapon. What is that weapon? It is this. He says, with the same idea, the same way of thinking. Maybe the best way to understand it is this. Arm yourself or equip yourself or prepare yourself with the same perspective. The weapon with which we are to be armed has to do with our mind. Now, this is important because, you know, you're probably, hopefully you're thinking about spiritual warfare. You're thinking about spiritual battle. And spiritual warfare, spiritual battle, is not something out of a Frank Peretti novel where you're looking for a green sulfur-breathing demon behind trees and rocks. Spiritual battle actually involves the truth. In fact, remember what Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He said, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We are to be armed with a truth. We're to be armed with a reality. We're to be equipped with the same perspective as Christ in his suffering. We are to face suffering, and more specifically, I think he has in mind here the suffering of death with the same perspective as the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I are not out to preserve our life. Our goal is not to make our life cushy. We're not to be as well-liked as possible. In short, to be a Christian is not to seek your best life now. In fact, that way of thinking seems to be actually incompatible with biblical Christianity. You and I have a weapon. This is what Peter's saying. You and I have a weapon at our disposal. And that weapon 
is the knowledge of the truth. The truth of, of what? That those who suffer for righteousness' sake actually triumph over evil. This is true, not because suffering is somehow meritorious. Peter, do not think that what he's calling you to do is to go and join a monastery and wear itchy clothes and eat tofu. Oh, He's not calling you, there's not somehow merit in your suffering. If you like tofu, that's okay, sorry. My suffering for righteousness is not meritorious, but it is indicative. It indicates that there is something or someone greater. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews said about Moses. He said, by faith, when Moses was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He, and he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to a reward. This is summarized in the words of a commentary. A Holman New Testament commentary, listen, says this. By following this counsel, you demonstrate to others that obeying God is the most important motivation for your life, more important by far than avoiding hardship and pain. By following this counsel, you demonstrate to others that obeying God is the most important motivation for your life, more important by far than avoiding hardship and pain. When you follow through with the decision to obey God, even though it might mean your harm, your physical suffering, it actually strengthens your spiritual life in that you are committed more than ever to following through with biblical obedience. And that says that there must be something better. There must be something greater. There must be someone who is more worthwhile than yourself. And Peter is wanting his readers and the Holy Spirit is wanting you and I to not lose heart and turn away from Christ when we encounter hard times and difficult people. That's the point. We're not to give up. We're not to stop living a godly Christ-centered life. Why? Because suffering does not ultimately defeat us. It simply ushers us into the very reality which we are actually seeking and that is to be without what? Sin. Now follow the reasoning very closely here. It's, not, it's actually not that difficult if we keep these things in mind. Peter says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now when you talk about suffering in the flesh, we know what he's talking about. He's referring to the, to the crucifixion, to the ultimate death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Simply stated, friends, there needs to be some way in which it can be said of us Christians that while we, li- we, while we live this life in fullness and joy, we don't try to be miserable. Being miserable is not a virtue, right? But the truth is that the be-all and end-all of our life is not to preserve it, but to actually give it away. That's, that's what we are as Christians, We don't fear suffering as a Christian. We don't fear persecution that is most certainly reserved for all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus because we know what's on the other side. The worst that can happen, humanly speaking, is what? 
What's the worst that can happen, humanly speaking? Death. And that only brings us to a complete break with sin. I want you to get this. Peter is eager that the Christian not turn aside from faith in Christ because of the threat of suffering, but rather that suffering for righteousness actually would become a vehicle for proclaiming the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, be armed with the thought that you will only come into a more, more full experience of the grace of God in salvation because whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, what can that mean? Well, I think Peter has in mind the actuality that some of his readers were actually facing the likelihood of death for their faith. In fact, as we'll go on in this text, if we have time today, as we go on in this text, we'll find that some actually did give their lives. Some actually did have to experience death because of their faith in Christ. And he is saying to them that when you suffer in the flesh, again, that's a way of describing the death of Christ, there is a ceasing from sin. Now, when he says has ceased from sin, it's in the perfect tense. Listen to what John MacArthur said about this. He said the perfect tense of the verb emphasizes a permanent, eternal condition free from sin. The worst that can happen to a believer suffering unjustly is death. And that is the best that can happen because death means the complete and final end of all sins. He went on, he said, if the Christian is armed with the goal of being delivered from sin and that goal is achieved through his death, the threat and experience of death is precious. The greatest weapon that the enemy has against the Christian is the threat of death, and that's not effective. We're to equip ourselves with the same thinking, with the same mind. We're to be having this intention, this perspective. We're not feeling oriented. We are fact-driven. We're to be armed with the weapon that every Christian is to be ready to use at any time, which is what? The knowledge of the idea or the mindset or the perspective that suffering, even death itself, as a Christian, is not against our Christian calling, but it is our Christian calling. Because that's what Jesus told us in Luke chapter 9. If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And unfortunately, we have perverted that message in the Western church to the point where we don't talk anything about self-denial. We don't talk anything about taking up our cross. We talk about taking up that which is a cushy and comfortable life. The call to, to obey Christ is not the call to submit to the American dream. I've often imagined the conversation that goes on between the child of God and his persecutor. His persecutor says, I'm going to kill you because of your faith in Christ, to which the child of God responds, okay, well, for me to die is gain. A bit bewildered, the persecutor says, okay, then I'm going to let you live. Unrattled, the Christian says, well, for me to live is Christ. And then he says, well, I'm going to make you experience such suffering in this life that you'll be miserable, to which the Christian replies, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory which is to be revealed in us. A Christian is to be unflappable, actually, in the face of suffering. Why? Because Christ died and rose again, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We have this weapon at our disposal, the weapon of truth. We have this great truth 
my friend, that what is waiting for us is future glorification. And no sword and no famine and no peril can touch that. And let me just add something here. While we're talking about the suffering of persecution, if we can argue from the greater to the lesser, if no persecutor's sword can rob us of that, then certainly no disease can. Certainly no other temporary suffering can. No other weakness of our frail body can do that. The finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ makes us bold in our Christian faith. And not only bold in our Christian faith, but we'll find out next, it makes us bold in our Christian testimony. So much so that we live the rest of our lives here, no longer for the human passions, but for the will of God, which presents us now to the next essential element for a godly resolve in the face of suffering. And that is not only the weapon that we possess, but the will of God that we pursue. If you will, look with me in verses two two through four again. The fact is that we will one day completely cease from sin. And, And that reality has a present consequence. It has a consequence on our living right now. We, as Christians, are headed for a sinless eternity. We're not there yet. Don't think, if you think you're there yet, come see me and I'll help you understand what a wretched sinner you are still. But we won't be there this side of heaven, but the truth that we're headed there actually invigorates our pursuit of holy living now. And that's what Peter says describes the Christian. We are about pursuing the will of God, not fleshly passions. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that there are various points in our Christian life when we find ourselves with a renewed vigor to live a holy and pure life. You've gone through that before in your life, right? You've, there are times in your life where you have found yourself saying, you know what, I'm, re- I'm going to live my life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, when we come to faith in Christ, There is that directional change because we have gone from death to life. But as we mature in Christ and we grow in grace, there come times when we must make a greater break with sin and a greater effort in our holiness. And one of those times often is when we encounter opposition. One of those times is when we encounter opposition from those in regards to, from others who in regards to following Christ. Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter describes in verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3 have been, and and this is where we might get stalled for a little while. I'm not sure. We'll see. These verses have been so important to me in my Christian life. Because when I came to Christ, even though I was outwardly religious, I was inwardly vile and depraved. And what happened in my life is that vile depravity at first began to leak out little by little. And then there became a raging flood of debauchery in my life. And when I came to Christ, there was such a change in my life that I actually no longer desired to live like I once did. Now, don't hear me say that and think what I mean by that is that I achieved a complete level of victory. I didn't. But my desires radically changed and the trajectory of my life changed. I could no longer use some of the same words that I had been accustomed to using. 
I found myself in a battle against lust where there was no battle before. The parties and all the drinking and all that went together with it, I wanted to avoid rather than participate in. And you know what? Just like these verses say, those who claim to be my friends thought it was very, very strange indeed. There's a principle that says, non-participation implies condemnation. Right? What happened is that when I decided that I was no longer going to run with them, they instinctively felt... Even though their consciences had been singed, they instinctively felt a twinge that there was something very wrong with the way they were living. And guess what? They didn't like it. And so the mocking began. And the maligning began. Now notice what Peter says here. As we face the prospect of suffering in the flesh... It has a way of paring down what is really important to us, doesn't it? We come to say something like, you know what? I spent enough of my time living for myself. It's time for me to start living for God. You see, God uses the prospect of suffering in the flesh, even if it's something so small as being mocked and maligned, to pare down what's really important to you, and he uses the prospect of suffering in the flesh to help you see what is really important to you. We've spent enough of our lifetime, Peter says. We've spent, he identifies himself, he's in on this. We've spent enough of our time following human passions, and that's what he says. He says human passions are, are, are also referred to as doing what the Gentiles want to do. That's referring to living like those who are not God's chosen people. How do those who are not God's chosen people then live? Well, notice what he says here. Verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And then highlight this word, living. Living in. This word is important. It is a perfect participle which speaks of one's unbroken pattern of life. And what he does with these next lists, these next six vices, six sins, he gives a representative list of both personal and social sins which describe this unbroken sinful pattern of life. We spend enough time living in sensuality Sensuality, what is that? That is unrestrained pleasure. Just, if it feels good, what? Do it. Sensuality, unrestrained pleasure. Spent enough of my time not withholding one pleasure that I wanted to myself. Passions. That you, you might use the term lusts. Speak of the sinful passions which, which are compulsory they they drive thought and action drunkenness the word this word is super vivid here it's a word that refers to wine that's bubbling up it is intoxication and can't even refer to the use of narcotic drugs spent enough of my time in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and then 
Talk about a descriptive word. The ESV translates orgies. NASB has the word carousing. One person described this word as, quote, a noisy, nocturnal, and riotous procession procession of half-drunken revelers and frolicsome fellows who after supper paraded through the streets at night with torches and music in honor of, a, of a, uh, some idol deity, singing and playing before houses of male and female friends and causing a major public disturbance. They featured feasts and drinking parties that are protracted till late night and indulge in every kind of moral perversion. You remember when Paul tells us, he describes the church, and he says, and such were some of you. He's not only describing the Corinthian church. Because I I think in a very real way, these words describe many of us. Drinking parties is the next vice. This is the the gathering in which the star of the party is alcohol and, and simply the focus of everything that goes on. It's all about the alcohol. It's all about grabbing your, 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 what, is, what is pleasing to you. Lawless idolatry speaks of worship of false gods which was often accompanied with all kinds of attendant moral perversion. You see this representative list? It's not exhaustive. He's just... He's just choosing some things out that that accurately define the the pre-Christian life. Peter calls it a flood of debauchery. If we had time, we'd go to Galatians chapter 5 and see what what Paul calls the fruit of the flesh. He identifies it also in Romans chapter 13. It It is profligate living which lacks any restraint. That's the flood of debauchery. It is... Let me describe it this way to you. The cesspool of moral sewage. And he says that they wonder why you're no longer with them. They're surprised. That that word surprise refers to witnessing something strange or novel. Seeing something, they said, this this doesn't make sense. This doesn't fit in. Imagine someone out there swimming around in a festering pool of putrefying sewage. And they say to you, hey... Why aren't you in here with us? The water's great. But it's more than that. They begin to malign you. That word malign is from the word that we get our word blaspheme. It refers to verbal abuse. It's it's a verbal assault. You've heard that. Oh, you just think you're so much better than I am, don't you? You just think you're just so holier than that. You just think you're goody two-shoes, don't you? You think you're better than me, don't you? And be, the moral assault begins. The verbal assault begins. Look, look, we don't know where that lets off, but let me just show you an example. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 22 for a moment? Acts chapter 22. Here's Paul giving this testimony before the people. He's preaching the gospel. He says in verse 20 of 22, chapter 22, verse 20. 
And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now look at this. Up to this word, they listened to him, but then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. You see how that progresses? He doesn't need to live anymore. This guy needs to die. Now, let me just say something. Some of you, as I said, have come out of lives such as this. You, had, you and I could be said that we have come out of a life of unrestrained depravity. And some others of you, because of the, church, the way the church is, uh, would say, you know, that, that was never me. I, I didn't come out of a life of unrestrained depravity. I don't want you to think that somehow this, this is redirected or doesn't apply to you. The principle is the same. The reality is that others are going to look at you and somehow think that you're strange and maybe even more so. I said before, don't think that because you can't uh, point to some point of, of, of unrestrained uh, uh, debauchery, some point of unrestrained depravity in your life, that, that you don't have a quote-unquote testimony. God saving you out of a life of unrestrained depravity, or God restraining you from a life of unrestrained depravity, all takes the grace of God. And so understand that you have been what you have been saved not just out of, but what you have been saved away from. And understand that that is incredibly strange to the average worldling. It's very practical here. Very applicable actually to all of us. Because the suffering that Peter has in mind is something that I believe every genuine believer has faced at one time or another. And it is the suffering of friends or relatives or acquaintances who begin to mock and then soon malign you for the break that you have made with your previous way of life. And the question is, and we're still on the first point. No, we're on the second point. Okay, good. The question is whether or not you will be so moved by that that you decide to turn back and turn away from Christ, whether you say, you know what, maybe I just better cool it a bit when it comes to living for Christ. What will prepare you from doing that is to recognize that there is a will we pursue. We no longer live to fulfill human passion, but we actually live to follow the will of God. And that will prepare you. But there's a third element that's very necessary. And these, these will go much more quickly. And that is in verse 5, there is a warning that we ought to ponder. A warning we ought to ponder. Taking off on that fact, thinking about this, there are some who will malign you. Peter says, now just I want you to understand this. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. As if he's saying, look, Don't turn tail and run. Don't give in. Don't let their threats against you and their mocking and their maligning of you turn you away from faithfully living for Christ. But understand that there is a direct warning here implied that there is a judge and a judgment. Go with me to the book of Acts again. 
Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There is a judge, and that judge is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the judge, and there is a coming judgment. Listen to what Paul said in a similar uh, uh, flow, in a similar vein. He said this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This judgment that Peter speaks of is the ultimate, impartial, eternal judgment of God through the Lord Jesus Christ when the unrighteous must give an account. And that word give is a word that refers to paying out. It it is taking or fulfilling a responsibility. And what is the responsibility? The responsibility that these wicked have is that they have to give a reason to God for their life. They have to give an account, a word, for the way that they have lived their lives. And who will be judged? Both the living and the dead. No one escapes this judgment outside of Christ. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And he is the judge of both the living and the dead. Not only those who have died, but those who remain up to the coming of Christ. This is a warning we have to ponder. Just think about this for a while. Let that truth stew in your mind and heart for a while as you're being maligned and as you're being mocked for not turning away from Christ. Recognize that those very people will stand before God and give an account, not for maligning and mocking you, but for something greater, maligning and mocking God. And that's a warning that you have to keep in your mind which will cause you to motivate you to this godly resolve in the face of suffering. And there's a fourth element, necessary element. If you look back with me, 1 Peter chapter 4, try to close things up here. Verse 6. This is why the gospel was preached. I'll stop right there. Why? 
Because there is a judge and a judgment. The reason that the gospel is preached is because there is a judge and a judgment. That's the reason for the preaching. Or, and the word, the re, word here, um, preached, was preached, is the word uh, if, from which we get evangelism. The reason for preaching or the evangelizing, because there is a judge and a judgment. And while there's some differing views on this text, I think it's pretty clear that Peter calls to mind the minds of his readers those believers in their midst who had already died. He does this just like he does with the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where they also were suffering persecution. And he calls to mind those believers who had already died, likely those who had been put to death for the cause of Christ. And he refers to them as those who are dead those who are dead, that though they were judged in the flesh the way people are, what is that? That's referring to their unjust treatment, to their suffering because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter wants his readers to know, he wants them to think about this, that those who faithfully lived in Christ Jesus and were judged in the flesh the way people are, that they, when they were alive, had the gospel preached to them And because of that fact, because they believed the gospel, they were physically put to death. But guess what? The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ has been announced to them during their life, and they believed it so that they might live in the Spirit the way God does. It's it's exactly what Peter told us in chapter 1, that the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to produce the child of God. Consider the Word we preach. Keep this as a, as a motivi- motivating influence on you to face suffering, resolutely deciding to be godly and Christ-like in the face of suffering. The wonderful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through the gospel that we come to repent and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through the gospel that we have ultimate relief from, release from the judgment that we all face naturally. And he says, those who have died, I mean, it's just like Paul saying, to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord immediately. Why? Because they're so good? No, because God is so full of grace and truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, is what the Spirit of God uses, as I said, to produce children for God. And this is what Peter presents as a necessary element for resolute godly living, even in the midst of the prospect of suffering persecution. Now, the problem with a message like this is that it can seem relatively um, inapplicable. Is that a word? Is that a word, Aaron? Okay, good. I don't want you to come to me later and say, Joe, you did it again. Inapplicable. It can't be. You look at this and go, it's just somewhat removed from us. Let me try to help with that. Peter is eager that we not fall to the temptation to give up and to give in when we face whatever kind of suffering most surely awaits you. And friends, that suffering is awaiting you. Some of you are going to face it tonight. You're going to go to a party, some of your old friends. 
And you're going you're gonna to be faced with whether or not you really tie one on, whether or not you really go, you know, hog wild like you used to. And then they look at you and go, what's wrong? Why aren't you doing this anymore? And you don't want to be called out. And you don't want to be made fun of. And so you're going to be right there on that, on the precipice of, of, of whether or not you're going to be a faithful, godly, resolute in your Christ-centered living or you're going to throw caution to the wind and jump in to that sewage, that cesspool of putrefying stuff. <laughs> so can you handle being made fun of? In November of 1993, there were 128 runners competing in the men's division of the NCAA Division II Cross-Country Championships. They were running a 6.2-mile course, but about halfway through that course, 120, I think it was 123 of those runners took a turn off course, which shaved off nearly half a mile. Now, one runner, Mike Del Cavo, realized what had happened, and, and as they were going on, he yelled to the pack that they were going the wrong way. But they all basically ignored him except for, I think, three or four others. He actually followed the course layout and took the right way while everyone else went the wrong way, even though the way that he chose was the steepest, most difficult part of the course. Well, when he finished, you wouldn't be surprised to find out that the others had already finished ahead of him. They were behind almost everyone else. They had gone the right way, but everyone else went the wrong way. Now, in a tragedy, the NCAA decided that they would just allow those 123 to be the first finishers, and they just said, we'll just change the course to, be, to reflect those. And so Mike Del Cavo was finished, I don't know, way down the list. But when asked about that and how the other runners had responded to Del Cavo for going the right way when everyone else was going the wrong way, he said, you know, they just laughed. They just laughed. Even, even as he was yelling to everyone else, no, come this way, this is the right way, they just all spurned him and laughed. And even when he was finished, they just laughed. My, my question is for you. What would keep you from going the right way? That's, that's kind of what's on Peter's mind. What's going to keep you from going the right way? Mocking maligning, some other kind of suffering, the prospect of death. What is the supreme value, the supreme treasure of your life? Because whatever is the supreme value, whatever is the supreme treasure, whatever is the superior treasure in your life is what you are going to proclaim to others as being most excellent. And my question is, is that Christ or something 
or someone else. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to you today, we do so with thanksgiving for the privilege of being together, for the privilege of of hearing from your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would motivate us to a resolute, godly life, even though we face some kind of suffering. That you would use that to pare away what is unnecessary and unimportant in our lives and to mark out that which is the greatest treasure. That we'd go the right way though others are bent on going the wrong way. And that you might work in us and for us, uh, for your glory, until Christ comes. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Would you stand?